listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I am Rich. I have Henry with me. How are you today? Hello, Rich. Um, well, after the last episode where I said the sun always shines for I Might Be Wrong, <laughs> it's pissing it down. It's absolutely chucking it. So, um, yeah, that, that lasted a whole one episode before I broke that spell. How are you doing? Well, you, you ruined it for us, basically, is what yeah. we're saying. I don't mind. I don't mind if it's raining while we record, because it's not like we're outdoors anyway. No, it's actually quite nice. It's quite cosy when you're inside and spring rain is lashing down outside. So yeah, yeah, it's it's not all that bad. <laughs> Absolutely, cool. We're going to get right into it this week. Uh, you have brought a band from both of our teens, yes, to the mix here, and a band that are renowned for appealing to that that sort of age group. Who have you got and what's the album? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's Blink-182 or Blink-182 if you're from the States. Blink-182, I guess, if you're from somewhere <laughs> else. I don't know. We'll, we'll go with that. And their album, Enema of the State. Uh, it's funny, you see, because it's a thing you put up your butt. What a brilliant, clever play on words. <laughs> Which I, I thought it was when I was, what? When did this come out? So it was 1999, and let's regress a bit. So let's go back into the world of when Jackass and South Park are on TV <laughs> and you're running around as a teenager trying to make sense of life. And uh, that's really where Blink-182 came into the mix for me. It was at school and there was a punk scene, mm-hmm. but not really a not really with a pop sheen to it. So it was before all of the kind of new metal and all that shit that turned <laughs> up. But it was post your Nirvanas and obviously post Green Day. And I think before that, there was there was punk. There was bands like, uh, I guess, you know, NoFX and Mill and Colin mm. and Pennywise. NoFX, by the way, best album name ever for punk in Droblick. What a spoonerism. And Blink-182 <laughs> nice. really ran on the heels of these guys with some very punk albums, but nothing like this. Yeah. Well, I think for me, they're the next logical step when you have a band like Green Day who are verging on but not quite pop punk, but are much more melodic and have a lot, a lot more of a sense of musicianship than some of the you know the thrashy 90s american punk bands and i think that that might be partly down to their background partly down to just the the direction the music scene was going in tell us about blink 182 who are they and where are they from yeah well they're they're from california they're a three piece mark hoppus bass player he's the only consistent member of the band he's always been there i think still there today i think they've reformed um tom delong he's a guitarist He's the guy who has all these alien conspiracy theories. If you've seen that on the news, he's a, a big Aliens fan and left in 2005. And the third person in the three pieces, the most interesting for me, it's Travis Barker, who joined the band in 98. He was a, a drummer and he replaced a guy called Scott Rayner who got basically kicked out for drug addiction after the first couple of albums. Blink-182 were basically dying a proper punk band death drummer was addicted they were touring and not making that much money and Travis Barker turns up and he's actually way more interesting than I think 
people give him credit for. His heroes are Buddy Rich and Animal. So Buddy Rich, if you've ever seen some of his YouTube stuff, one of the greatest drummers ever. Animal, probably from Sesame Street, the second greatest drummer ever. <laughs> but he's a kind of working class, covered in tattoos, quiet kind of guy. But he put this album together. So this album, although it was written by really the other two, he's got no songwriting credits, but he arranged all the songs, all the tempo, all the verses, all of that was his his doing. And when he came in, he turned a pretty average band and they were pretty average. I've heard their previous albums and didn't get on with them. Turned them into something a little bit special. And he is renowned for being the more deep thinking, sensitive, thoughtful member of the group. He's one of the things that I read about them as a group was DeLong and Hoppus, when they were touring, would share a dressing room and would basically spend their days making fart jokes and coming up with <laughs> the most stupid, ridiculous entrance to the gig line that they could come up with for coming on stage. And uh, he would have a separate dressing room to the two of them because he acknowledged that he just couldn't put up with that shit 24-7. Like, he had to have his own space. Yeah, so back in 1999, you mentioned Green Day. They do share um, a producer, so Jerry Finn, who was um, Green Day's producer. He heard of them because of American Pie. Okay. Uh, so one of the songs on this album, Mutt, is a song that's featured in American Pie, and that had Rainer on the drums. And Jerry Finn heard it, and I think he thought, "Hang on a second, I can, I can." help these guys get a more poppy sound and so said want to work with you guys and this album was was born of that and it definitely has some of the atmosphere in here i would say is similar to what you would expect from a green day album the layering and the way the instruments sound has a very slick pop punk vibe to it yeah it's not overproduced but it's definitely not the kind of recorded in a basement live sound it, it's it's slick and one of the things that i found that was interesting about these guys was we talked about or you talked about that 90s punk scene you talked about green day almost exclusively punk comes from an urban setting most of those bands grow up in shitty neighborhoods in big cities they're angry at the lack of chances they've been given they're frustrated by the lack of opportunity for jobs these guys aren't that. These guys are middle-class suburban white kids from middle-class white America. And I think that's part of the appeal here. And it also matches up with the lyrics that they write and the the musicianship that they have in terms of there's not so much to gripe about there. The stuff they're griping about is like, oh, I'm unlucky with girls. It's not fair. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it's exactly that. I mean, if you were a a guy growing up in the 90s, it's so relatable because mm -hmm. it is just talking about failure with girls, school, yeah. <laughs> life. And so you can you can put yourselves in their shoes very easily. Yeah. And most punk bands are outsiders. Their their members are normally outsiders. Now Hoppers definitely was. He he really struggled, I think, to feel like he had a place in the world until he discovered bands like The Cure and The Smiths when it seems like he was much more comfortable with being a part of that scene. But DeLong was named Homecoming King 
<laughs> and apparently was expelled from senior year of high school for t- showing up drunk to a basketball game. So he's that classic high school Jock. jockey type. Yeah. And that definitely comes across in the sense of that sense of privilege and entitlement that a lot of the lyrics in these in these songs have. Yeah. And I assume he's the one writing the lyrics. I think so. Both Hoppus and DeLong have divorced parents and Mm -hmm. Barker lost his mum when he was just going to high school. So the three of them all are coming from kind of fairly, fairly broken homes. And it's those kind of late teen, early 20s years with slightly difficult experiences of childhood. And that's kind of all funneled into this funny old um, album. And, you know, we, we haven't yet discussed it, but... I'm sure we will come on to this, that we've mentioned the the music, which is brilliantly produced, this driving punk pop anthems, but the, the lyrics, I mean, some of them are crude at best. There's some bass humour in here, and it's the kind of stuff where, you know, you bring the album home, it's got a porn star on the front, and it's got mm-hmm. parental advisory explicit lyrics on there. Th- that whole thing is just, it's targeting... A certain demographic. Well, it's not just a porn star on the front, is it? It's a porn star in a nurse's outfit with a big grin on her face putting on a latex glove. glove, yeah. Which, you know, Enema of the State, you know exactly where they're pointing that that album cover at. Yeah. One of the things that I noted down was they seem on the surface like the quintessential Peter Pan syndrome success story. So they have tapped into this immature teenage dynamic and combined it with catchy pop punk hooks and they've just stayed in that bubble so all of the stuff that you're talking about all this all those feelings and that teenage immature male not really knowing how to relate to girls how to get the girl in quotes all that kind of stuff that's really understandable when you're 14 15 or your hormones are raging these guys were in their mid-20s when they were writing and releasing this stuff they've never really grown up yeah and this is what really annoyed a lot of the music press at the time. So so Kerrang panned them for their, in quotes, moronic sense of humour and corporate approach. And Blink-182 knew exactly what they were doing when they made mm-hmm. this album. They've taken schoolboy humour, turned it up to 11, and they turned it up to a level so high that it's almost a parody uh, to the point where you can't... Well, some people didn't attack them because it was so over the top. That's the thing for me. The the get out clause on this stuff is it's like a Tarantino approach yeah. where the violence is so comic book comedic that you can't say that it's in any way realistic. And I think there's an element of you can get away with saying you like this stuff because it's so tongue in cheek. It's so ridiculous and over the top. But that hides the fact that there's a lot of teenage kids out there who take this very seriously and almost as a bible for the way you should approach life and that's where it starts to become a problem well so first song right away if you hear the chorus he's singing i need a girl that i can train now yeah on the face of it you can't you couldn't get away with that now but if you look at the rest of the song and what it's about it's about a guy who's got a girlfriend and she's a complete handful it's a disaster he he's too scared to break up with her and he's saying that his dad would say you know you've got to turn your back and run now and get out of this relationship but he doesn't want to and it's easier if he could train her to stop her being so annoying i don't know it's kind of walking that tightrope between really well falling off and not 
Well, again, it's it's that thing of if you assess these lyrics and sort of think about them in a bit more depth, you can justify that from that perspective. But most teenage kids won't. They'll just hear, I want a girl that I can train, and that will be their takeaway from the song. And this is part of the problem with Blink, is some of the interviews and the stories that you read about them suggest that there's more maturity and depth than they let on, but it really doesn't help when all they produce is massive dickheadishness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at some of their music videos. Right. And just running around Los Angeles in like with no clothes on. Is it was my age again that they did that for? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Nobody likes you when you're 23. Not when you act like you're 14. Well, yeah, exactly. Again, that's a brilliant, entertaining song. It's got catchy hooks. I mean, it's got something like half a billion listens on Spotify. Jeez. It's a fun, fun track. And there's got to be more to it than that because of the fact that there's plenty of fun pop punk with zero depth on Spotify and out in the music world that doesn't get nearly this level of attention. Yeah, and I think there are there are a few factors that make it that. Number one is Barker's drumming, which is off the scale good. It's, mm-hmm. it's really good. Like he's... He's right up there in that top bracket of some of the world's best drummers in that he can he can play as fast as you like, but he can speed up a song, slow it down, really put some emphasis into a chorus. He's very, very talented. That's that's number one. Two, uh, we probably kind of mentioned the, the, the lyrics in that they're over the top, so you can kind of take them tongue in cheek. But three, the, the music, it's anthemic. It's really... It really lifts you up in a way that a lot of punk is quite serious. Mm-hmm. But these songs, they're all in major chords. They're all powerful, almost uplifting songs. And if you're, well, like I was back in 1999 when I bought this album, these songs maybe want to get up and run around the room and have a good time. And, and that's, I think, why they're so successful. Musically, I, I do think that Blink-182 get a bad rap because of all of the immaturity and the misogynist lyrics and all that kind of stuff, people forget that musically they're actually really decent. Like you say, the drumming's unbelievable. The guitar work and the sound is very appealing. And there's an energy there. There's a really vibrant energy to the whole thing, which is is massively appealing. And I don't know whether it works if you take away all the poop jokes, but it's certainly a lot of fun if you don't scratch the surface at all. Yeah. And there's, and, and like you say, there definitely is some, there's, there's a lot of issues with the lyrics. Pitchfork talked about nice guy misogyny practiced by men who claim to love and respect women, but also think they know what's best for them was rampant in 90s culture and music and Blink-182 were not an exception. Yeah. And that, that is true. I mean, it's partly a, uh, just an indictment of the whole American rock scene at that time and i don't know that that's gone away but yeah it's you have to you have to knock them for that it's not some of this shit isn't okay you've you've got to i think although in all their songs the the women in their songs are on top they are the kind of alphas the guys are down below trying to kind of reach the heady heights of the girls and they can't get them and it's basically if you're struggling in that relationship place i guess the counter argument is these guys are trying to hold a torch to all the people who can't get the girls 
can you just sing about it in that way that that makes it allowable no probably not <sighs> no and and again we go back to this is the kind of stuff that if you're a if you're like a 13 14 year old teenage boy who's trying to work out the world you'll definitely think some of these things at times and you mature and you grow up and you realize the world doesn't work that way it's not as simplistic as that it's not just oh nice guys finish last there's a lot more nuance to life than that their lyrics don't cover any of that it's just feeling sorry for yourself it's very cynical and that's my issue with it and it's it's definitely trying to appeal to that kind of stuff i mean they've they've said themselves i just want to make money and fuck credibility i think is a hoppus quote yeah well and that's where they they went corporate and well they always have been i think they've they've seen an opportunity there's a niche there and and they filled that gap for this album and the next one where they capitalized on a lot of kids in the 90s um needs i guess i mean you know Right. Going away to college in the lyrics there. If young love is just a game, that I must have missed the kickoff. <laughs> Perfect example of what many people yeah. go through. And th- and that's the thing. There's they sort of exist in a grey area where they're not so deeply unpleasant that you can just discard them. But they're also not. <laughs> they're not necessarily good guys. No, but then at school, a lot of my, a lot of my female friends love them. Big fans, yeah, really enjoy Blink. Would would be dead key if they were at a concert. They want to go to a Blink concert, and, and a lot of girls put posters of them on the wall. They were poster boys. They would be up on in in, in girls' bedrooms. It was a it was a thing. Yeah, and I I read a quote about that that I can't I didn't note down. I can't remember where it was from, but one of the one of the interviews or one of the reviews that I read that suggested that if you went to a Blink concert and obviously the live experience was a big part of being a Blink fan for a lot of American fans in particular. If you were a guy, you could come away from that concert thinking, oh, I could be in a rock band and I could be like, this is maybe an area I could succeed in. If you came away from from it as a girl, you might be considered pretty enough to be shouted at to take your top off, which they did to a lot of girls at their gigs. They'd encourage them to get topless. Yeah, and this is where they jump the shark a little bit with their antics and i think if they just left it at the musical side if they left it with the lyrics and the albums and toured that then they could have got away with it but they went way beyond that and i think this is the the corporate side of hoppus and delong thinking if we push that dial over to 11 again in all of the interviews we do and all of the stuff on stage that we do Parents will get more offended. Mm-hmm. The news channels will pick up on us running around naked and we'll be even more in the press and it will it will feed the beast, you know? Yeah, and they're definitely an attention-seeking band and that's how they've continued to be popular and continued to be, you know, to sell records. I mean, I've, I've read another article or another interview with them where they talked about the fact that they'd stopped encouraging female fans to take their tops off because as their uh, fan base got younger they got fed up with something along the lines of it's depressing to see 13 year old girls take their tops off and I'm like 13's where you've got the limit there that feels Jesus, pretty unpleasant yeah. yeah it's like that's your fault don't, right, don't, right. Don't, you kind of feel like you're the victim for <laughs> it's your problem you started it and I guess these guys are a good place to have a discussion we've not really had on this podcast which is 
if you like music from people who turn out to be dickheads, is that okay? Can you separate the talent from the personality? And we could have had this conversation with Liam Gallagher because he is he's a bell end, but most of the most of the talent with Oasis comes from from Noel, so I don't really mind that so much. <laughs> but if you are if you think about lots of pop and rock stars from the 60s and 70s a lot of them were like they were sleeping with their fans you know a lot of their fans were teenage girls who were probably underage that's not okay and it wouldn't be okay now but you'd have to scrap large chunks of 60s and 70s music from your collection and from your listening habits if if you were to say that you can't separate the two yeah and I think the excuse of, oh, it's of its time is, it's a thin one, right? It's mm-hmm. an easy get out clause. And it's like, oh, well, it's all totally fine because it happened when it was allowed. Right. And it's like, well, is that it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is that, exactly. Is that your only argument? Come on. I don't know. I think with Blink, I think they get away with it in my book in that if you just take the album and take that and all that it stands for, I, I mean, I love listening to, listening to this. I'm not going to kind of try and say oh i don't listen to this anymore because i don't agree with some of the stuff they're saying it's a fantastic album but i wouldn't want to go and watch them at a concert because i i don't want to see all of that extra stuff going on and they've they've stopped and scaled back a lot of that and i think also we'd be more than double the age of your average blink gig goer so it'd feel weird anyway well we we kind of i'll I'll go to the to, to the end of the story now because it's a good point to talk about it but they released Take Off Your Pants and Jacket in 2001, which was a pretty much carbon copy of um, Enema of the States. A brilliant album. Again, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it. But they had some time off and um, all three of them became fathers. Mm-hmm. And they came back with a kind of newer sound, but all of that old Purell stuff had gone because I guess, you know, you, you grow up. Mm-hmm. And they haven't been as successful. They've lost that big fan base just because they've matured yeah part of that whole commercial we just want to make money thing comes out when you discover that they're almost entirely sober so a lot of the stuff they're doing is those decisions are not just them being drunken idiots they're they're making those decisions for specific commercial reasons yeah well after their first two albums Buddha and Cheshire Cat where they had they had their drink and drugs problems. They've seen that road. They know where it leads. The drummer's gone, new drummer in. And I guess they've made that decision that if we're going to do this, let's do this with a with a clear head, which is completely at odds with the way they're portrayed, like right. all of the soundtracks, all of the teen movies that were around in the late 90s and early 2000s, which were totally focused on frat parties and booze and the, the number of programs where this will have been a backing track to a heavy drinking session it's strange that that's just totally not what they're about yeah and and some of that must have just made them absolute record label darlings because you know they're in control they're they know exactly what they're doing they're attention seeking and and they know how to do that and make it work cold-eyed corporate whatever (laughs) yeah all right, we haven't really gone into the songs. We should do that. Yeah. Where are the highlights of this album for you? So to start with, I, I love this whole album. I'll pick out a couple of tracks, but 
it's a 35 minute album with 12 songs in it just <laughs> it just plows through and it is great i do love going away to college which i just mentioned there's aliens exist which is a kind of weird one because it doesn't talk about girls it talks about aliens that must be um good old <laughs> tom delong starting to have his theories about otherworldly existence but that is a great song well he's convinced that the u.s government have covered up loads of alien encounters yeah, in- interestingly <laughs> he he got his own youtube channel and he released these two videos in 2017 and said oh these are covered up u.s military videos of aliens and proof that there's ufos there and the um, Pentagon declassified those two videos just now, and, go, and they said, "Yeah, we actually don't know what these are." <laughs> so, is that the uh, the jets over the Pacific? Yeah, there was a yeah. I think that is it um, with the American yeah, kind of military tra- training. That's it. So DeLong was going. These videos are a proof, and it's a cover up. And pen- the Pentagon did actually go. Well, yeah, we covered it up, but now we're releasing it, and we have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, you tell us. So, so maybe. He's not too too bonkers. Any others? Yeah, I've I've got to w- mention what's my age again. Yeah, because uh, nobody likes you when you're 23. And I remember listening to that before I was 23, all the way before, thinking, ah, I'm 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 younger than that. And then 23 went by, and now I'm 30. Went past, and it's like, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, <laughs> that lyric means nothing to me anymore. Yeah, you've got to do uh, all the small things as well, because that those two tracks are probably the most famous tracks that they've released i think yeah and one of their best songs as well yeah so that's a classic one song in the middle of all of this though that is just a glimmer that they're not all puerile humor is adam's song which is a song about suicide and it's the one song which slows everything down and it's not the kind of thing that you'd put on at a party but it's one that's referenced a lot by fans who say this is actually one of their most important songs i guess Mm-hmm. because it does talk about those issues that you've got when you're younger and puts them all out on the table. Well, that's that's the song that suggests that there's more depth there and also that they're not quite the cocky, no-cares-in-the-world types that they try and portray because that was written... Was it Hoppus or DeLong who wrote that about feeling empty coming back from tour? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's one of them anyway. I can't. I can't find it in my notes. But yeah, it was. It was semi autobiographical, which shows you that there's there's a little bit more under the surface than what you're getting with. Nobody likes you when you're 23. Yeah, and then the, the last two songs for me are amazing. Some albums that we've talked about have a, you know, a, a big finish. <laughs> they turn the dial up to full power on Wendy Clear and Anthem. This is Travis Barker basically showing how good he is with a yeah. drum kit and the whole band going full power. And I love this because it's so much more, I was going to say uplifting, but in Wendy Clear, they talk about uh, his lyrics saying the three date theory is getting old. Everyone's getting left out in the cold. But these two songs for me, they're quite a cathartic way to finish an album. Yeah. You talked about the length of this album being 35 minutes and 12 songs. I don't know there's a bad song on here. No. They all fly along, other than you know, other than Adam's song, they'll fly along typical punk pop. They're great to bounce around a room to. Yeah, it's a fun album to just stick on in the background and nod your head along to. I would put this album right up there in my list of favourite albums of all time. I know exactly what I'm going to get. Yeah. I think it's a 
brilliant album and it's it's difficult to square that off with some of the lyrics but i think because so much of it is focused on yeah it's the perspective of the underdog yeah it's an underdog but it's a cynical and embittered underdog which is i think what i don't like about it yeah there's no desire to improve yourself to get up to that level it's how do i drag them down to me that's a fair point yeah and that's what I think I don't like. I don't know that I listen to this stuff very much anymore. I listened to it a lot in my late teens and early 20s when it was a really popular album. When you suggested this one, I don't know that I've listened to this album for probably two decades, really? decade and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the bands that were their stablemates, like The Offspring and Green Day, I, I listened to less. And I'm not sure why this one and the following album actually I, I come back to. I think it's just because those two albums so capture my school days because that was the the cd that i would i would put on all the time and mm -hmm. i wasn't the guy running around with my clothes off in the common room that was some others <laughs> but it just puts you back in that and you can look back on that time with rose tinted glasses can't you i mean there's Absolutely. It, it's easy to do that and so uh and many people do so it's an album from, from my school days and i look back at it and you know it's quite nice every now and then just to just to lapse back into those weird times. And did these albums bring you on to other things? So more pop punk or similar kind of bands or genres? Ooh, well, that's, that is a good question. Almost no. From that point where this kind of punk pop rock style turns corporate, the music world became super interested in, in this kind of style. And it spawned, you know, Good Charlotte and all of those Jimmy World, I guess, and, <laughs> and and the All American Rejects, all those guys, and I don't know. It kind of almost got over the top. It almost got too much, and I think at that point, actually, I think my brain said, "You need to start maturing your music taste." Because at the same time as these guys were playing on my CD player, Radiohead was starting to get involved, mm -hmm. and my brain was going, "Wait a second, there's there's another way, and it's much more." Um, just a different type of music altogether. Yeah. For me, I guess it's a stepping stone. So like I say, I listened to this a bunch when it appealed more to my immature sense of humour, which definitely hasn't gone away. It's just changed. <laughs> yeah. But for me, I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Eat World, Bleed America. We will talk about this album at some point is one of my absolute favourites. But I found things like that. I found things like uh, Less Than Jake. Borders and Boundaries yeah. is is an album that I have continued to listen to a lot over the years. Bands like Real Big Fish as well, who I guess it's less pop punk and more ska punk, but it definitely has all of that very poppy, melodic, upbeat, yeah. major key sound to it. Yeah. And that's where I ended up. And Real Big Fish and Lesson Jake are definitely very immature, very silly they poke fun at themselves. They don't necessarily lash out at anyone else, which I like more. Yes, agree. Totally. Yeah, Real Big Fish sing anthems about beer rather than Correct. anthems about not getting girlfriends. <laughs> and that's a good point, actually, because Blink-182 don't go anywhere near that. There is just, as you said, I'm the underdog. Poor me. Life's crap. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Have you seen them live? We talked briefly about their live stuff. No. In fact, I haven't seen many of them or their ilk live mm -hmm. i think i skipped straight past that that type of music and went straight into the more 
I guess more more technical, detailed, more accomplished music that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Um, so no, I haven't. How about you? I haven't seen them live. We mentioned Real Big Fish. Real Big Fish I've seen live. They were immense. That is probably the sweatiest gig I've ever been to because you just didn't stop moving. I'd imagine Blink would be the same, just constant energy, jumping around, bouncing off people, sweating your butt off. Yeah, I did see actually, um, I guess roll forward 10 maybe 15 years i saw a i guess a modern version of them in a band called fiddler who (laughs) i have to mention as if you don't know fiddler um fiddler are all in capitals f-i-d-l-a-r which stands for fuck it dog life's a risk which is an amazing (laughs) title for a band they talk more about drink and drugs but they're very much a just a youthful and energetic band and there aren't many of them around anymore i think when we were growing up in the 90s there were lots of this kind of thing a fiddler the band that you've mentioned before on a podcast where you went to that crazy gig yeah that was the one where people were getting knocked out and beer was going up in the air everywhere it was um <laughs> amazing it was kind of bonkers but i don't think that kind of band exists that much i mean there are quite a few punky kind of quite intense bands like shame and like oh what's that bristol band called the one that i like and you don't idols yeah i don't dislike idols (laughs) i just i just was disappointed when i saw them live bands with with intensity but this kind of puerile punk humor schoolboy humor doesn't really i think it's just it's not fashionable now it's not woke enough is it (laughs) i wonder i wonder whether there is like an underground garage scene in various places, particularly in America, I'd imagine that there's a lot of like Floridian bands and maybe Californian bands that do this stuff, but they just don't have the mass mainstream appeal that Blink had. Yeah, I think also there aren't that many that there aren't that many guitar bands, really, because as we said in the last podcast, people are just crossing over genres a lot more, and you don't need to label yourselves as oh we are a punk band or we are a electronic band. You can. You can mix and match and you don't need to be pigeonholed. Yeah, I think I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element of some of those pure rock bands are often just in, in local scenes. So you don't hear about them unless you're in those local scenes. Yeah. So yeah, I haven't seen them. I don't think I'd rush to one of their gigs, but I am very grateful for their their place in my music back catalogue. So yeah, that's that's them. I I think we had to talk about it and it's good that we did. And I think on balance, can we forgive them this kind of, their style? Not totally. I don't think we can, but it's there. They did it and they made a, an absolutely cracking album. I think you can acknowledge enjoying them and also recognise that they're a bit of a bunch of dicks as well. I think that's okay. Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the line for me. Yeah. And I do absolutely agree with you. They need to be talked about because, I mean, they were huge. They were an absolutely massive band. Pretty sure they were on top of the pops and things like that back in the day. 15 million albums sold. That's just just insane amounts of copies. And think about, you know, an album costs, what, 12, 15 pounds back in in the day. Yeah. And they're, they're a band that didn't just have that appeal in their home territory. They were huge in a lot of places in the world massive over here i think they're big in japan as well big in europe yeah huge 
definitely not a small band and and worthy of our attention so yes good good one for for bringing them up all right i guess we should mention that we're on the social media you guys know where to find us i might be wrong uk instagram twitter facebook come and say hi do it we'll be back next week cheers henry it's been it's been a fun one yeah catch you next time rich take it easy Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong.